Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So like many of you, I've been watching the Olympics over the past few weeks. I'm not like a like avid Olympics guy. I'm kind of like a passive Olympics guy. I'm like a, okay, I'm washing the dishes. The kids are getting ready for bed. Let's throw it on. I'm, I'm like a, I'm like a primetime rebroadcast Olympics guy. You know, like if there was something good that happened, I'll watch that. And if something amazing happens, yeah, I'll, I'll tell my kids, come on, look, look, you got to see this. You got to see what happens. I mean, because really... What attracts us to the Olympics is not necessarily just this idea of, oh, Team America, let's go. For most of us, what's interesting, what's, what's attractive, what makes us key into the Olympics is seeing human beings pushed to their absolute limit. I mean, for those of you who are old enough and remember Michael Phelps in his heyday, just watching him crush that sort of world record pace as he swam, or Usain Bolt just running faster than any of us can imagine, or, or even this year, the, the 14-year-old kid who pulled off a, a 900 in skateboarding. That trick took Tony Hawk years of his life and teeth out of his mouth, and here this 14-year-old kid does one in the Olympics. We watch because we want to be awed. We watch because we want to say, Wow. That's what's inspiring about the Olympics. That's what's significant and why we're attracted to them because we get to see humans do awesome things in the truest sense of the word. Awesome is something that fills us with awe. It's where it comes from. And oftentimes that's what the Olympics inspires in us, but oftentimes that's not how we think of God. Oh, sure, we would say God is awesome, If you were from a youth group in a certain time period, you would really sing that our God was an awesome God. Sure, we would say those things and maybe we believe them, but the way that we actually treat God, the way that we actually engage with God is not always that. For most of us, we sort of keep God as something distant and abstract. Sure, we can make good arguments about the Trinity, We can tell you the difference between the nature and essence of God, but how often are we filled with wonder at him? Right, maybe you can, maybe you can recite a catechism question about who God is. Maybe you can't. Maybe you can tell us all sorts of Bible verses about who God is. Maybe you can't. But for most of us, especially if we've been a Christian for any length of time, our tendency is to push God away from the realm of the awe-inspiring and into the realm of the bookish, into the realm of the academic. He's a topic to be studied. We've been walking through different psalms together this summer, and the psalm that we're going to look at today is asking us to do things a bit differently. Because what this psalm is going to do is it's going to ask us to stir ourselves up, to stir inside of ourselves a sense of the truth, goodness, and beauty of God. And that's it. The psalm's not too long, not like I put you through last week, but it's long 
but it only has one command. It's repeated a couple times, but there's only one command in this whole psalm, and it's to worship. The ESV uses the word bless, which is what I'm going to read out of, but the idea behind that word is that we're worshiping. And worship is always a responsive action. Worship is always a response to something else that has happened. In our lives, the things that we worship are the things that stir our desires, that light up our mind, that stir our souls. Worship is always a response to something else, to truth, goodness, and beauty in something else. It, just as an aside here, have you ever noticed that at City Church, we don't just stand up and start singing? We don't have music playing that you just kind of come in and start singing. No, we respond to the call to worship. We're called in by the truth, goodness, and beauty of God, and then we respond in worship. Because worship is always a response. And so our worship as Christians is always tied to when we stand in awe of what God has done for us. And so what that means is that for many of us, our worship is often non-existent or it's limp and half-hearted. And the antidote, the solution is not to come to church and to try real hard. It's not to sort of grit your teeth and tie your shoes a little tighter, get that one extra belt loop in, and this today I'm going to really do the worships. No. The response, the way, that we, the way that we understand, the way that we begin to get into the headspace of worship is to be reminded of the vast beauty of who God is, to be reminded of the greatness of our salvation, to be reminded of all the things that we have seen God do and that God has done in the past. That's what Psalm 103 is calling us to. And that's what I want to lay out for you this morning. So if you would, I'd ask that you would stand up as I read Psalm 103 this morning. A Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. 
and his righteousness to children's children, to, keep, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. David writes this song and he's got one intent for us. He's got one big idea he wants to convey and he wants us to sing over and over. He tells us at the very beginning, at the very end, he bookends this psalm with this, bless the Lord, O my soul. This is what God is calling us to. David is telling us to bend our knees, to be so struck by what God has done that we cannot help but to worship. And what he does in the middle of the psalm, between, in between those bless the Lord, O oh my souls, is he explains to us sort of the why. Why should we bless the Lord? The reason that he gives behind it, the thing that should fill us with awe and wonder is the steadfast love of God. Now, if you were following along with me and maybe uh, you had a different version of the Bible, you'll notice that, that it didn't say steadfast love in every version. Some of your Bibles say love. Some of them say loving kindness. Others, others say mercy. There's all sorts of ways to get at this because this word is a little bit difficult for us to bring into English. Underneath all of those different translations of that is an idea that is absolutely important to the whole Old Testament, but especially to the book of Psalms. It's the idea of God's covenant faithfulness to his people his covenant faithfulness, that he is going to continue to love them. If you're fancy and want to know the word, right? It's chesed, right? It's this idea that God will be faithful to his covenants. God has relayed to us, his people, covenants throughout time. He made one with Adam and Eve, another with Noah. To Abraham, not only did he make a covenant, but he reassured Abraham by making that covenant to him several times. He made a covenant with the people of Israel. He made a covenant with David and his family. And finally, we see Jesus take and sum all of these covenants up into the new covenant, which we celebrate and participate in each week. This is what God is doing. This is how God has interacted with his people throughout time. And God, throughout all that time, is always faithful. He is always faithful to his promise. He is immutable, unchanging, unwavering. It's who he is. God's steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness is in his very nature. But it's not just his character. It's not just who he is. God's covenant faithfulness is what he does. It's how he interacts with us. At the very beginning of the psalm, David kind of rapid fires off what this covenant faithfulness to us, his people, looks like. He says, he forgives your iniquity. He heals your diseases. He redeems you from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love. There's that covenant faithfulness and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. 
God is faithful again and again to his covenant. And to describe this, David begins to call on some really fascinating analogies that we don't really see anywhere else in all of the Psalms. This is why this Psalm might be so familiar to you because the language that David uses is so striking. It's so almost shocking to us. He says his steadfast love, God's covenant faithfulness is as great as the expanse of the heavens. David says it stretches from the ground until you can stop going up. We know a thing or two about the universe. And I know that up from here goes an awful long way. I know that up from here goes an immeasurable way. So God's steadfast love to us is immeasurable. And then David said that God's covenant faithfulness, his tender love for us, fills all time. Not only does it take up all of space, in both sense of that word, but it also fills up all time. His covenant with us, his faithfulness to us is from everlasting to everlasting. God's love for you. Church, if you are a Christian, God's love for you did not start when you decided to follow him. If you're a Christian, God's love for you did not start when you were born. If you're a Christian and you're here this morning, God's love for you started in all eternity past. Before there was an earth, before there was a mountain or an ocean, there was God's love for you. And it extends into the future, into eternity in that direction. God's covenant faithfulness, his mercy and kindness, his tender love for you and for I is from everlasting to everlasting. And then he says that he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. They never touch his forgiveness. Another Psalm says that that God forgives our sins and he remembers them no more. The God who knows everything chooses to forget because of his covenant faithfulness. That's almost too much to think about. God's love for you is eternally in the past. God's love for you is eternally into the future. His forgiveness of you knows no boundary. His love and tenderness towards you is as high as the galaxies are above us. You almost, no, you can't. I can't wrap my brain around how loving and caring God is for us. How loving and caring God is for me. And that's the point. That's what David is trying to do here. What David is trying to do is absolutely scramble our brains, right? You might say it this way. Imagine you were cracking an egg, making a scrambled egg, and somebody said, this is your brain. This is your brain when you try to comprehend God's covenant faithfulness to you. And then you scramble the, brain, the, the egg up. There was a TV commercial about that, but it was a little bit different. But this should scramble our brains. This should make us feel a sense of awe and wonder. That's what David is trying to do. His steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness is incomprehensible. It's a part of his character and it's part of what he does. It is what he does. But not only that, we see it sharpened and focused in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, we see God's covenant faithfulness 
as Jesus was faithful to every one of God's commands, as he lived his perfect life on earth. We see his tender kindness to us extend to the point of the cross where Jesus took the punishment for our covenant breaking, for the ways that we have broken faith. The story of Abraham, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, is is one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. Because what happens in the story is God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to prepare a covenant ceremony. And the way it worked in the ancient Near East is they would take an assortment of animals, and they would cut those animals in half, and they would make a path in between them. It was called a blood path. And you would walk together with the person who you were making the covenant with. And you would say when you got to the end of that path, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, you can do that to me. And then the other person would say, and if I don't hold up my end of the deal, you can do that to me. And what we would expect to happen, what you and I expect to happen next in that story is that Abraham and God walk through that together. Wouldn't that be great? No. That would be a terrible ending to the story. Thanks be to God, that's not how that story ends. Just when Abraham thinks that it's going to happen, it's about dust. Just when Abraham thinks that he's about to make this covenant and walk through the blood path together, you might remember what happens. Abraham falls asleep. He takes a little siesta. He needs a nap. I feel that. Sometimes I need a nap. And in this nap, Abraham has a dream. And what happens in this dream? Two symbols of God walk the blood path together. Why? Why didn't Abraham walk the blood path? Because God knew that he couldn't keep it. God knew that Abraham could never keep the covenant. So what did he do? God said, I will walk and swear by myself. And so then what does Jesus do on the cross? But he keeps that covenant on our behalf when he takes all of the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our covenant unfaithfulness, for the ways that we sin against him. Jesus was taking the the negative side of the covenant, the covenant breaking off of us so that just like Abraham, we stand before God in covenant with him with no consequence. If you are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you find yourself in the covenant faithfulness of Jesus. That is what God sees in you. We are God's true children, not because of what we've done, but because what he has done. And that's the beauty of this psalm. It reminds us how vast and immeasurable the love of God is. And it shows us what's required to receive it. Did you see where it listed out all of the commandments in this? No, you didn't. Why? Why wouldn't David go, and by the way, make sure you behave yourselves because this is really good. Make sure you get real moral because that's what you ought to do if you love God. No, that's not what we see. That's not what's in the Bible. What we see as we read this is that God's love for us, his, his eternal love for us, his unchanging love for us is not a reward for our goodness. It's not an earned or merited thing. It is based solely on his love for us and and his forgiveness of us. David ties again and again and again his steadfast love for us, his forgiveness of us. 
He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us for our faithlessness. I'm going to say that again because it is too good to be true. God does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us for our failures. What we deserve is wrath poured out on our sins and we get none of it. Jesus drank that cup to the dregs. We get nothing but loving kindness from God. That's it. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our failures. Even if this week we have been frustrated with people around us and have been angry and sinful towards others, he doesn't repay you according to your sins. Even if, like me, you have thought too much of the ways that other people think of you, if you have lived in a world caged by that, like I have this week, he doesn't, he doesn't repay us according to our sins. His steadfast love continues to come at us. There is no earning, just all field reverence. Church, the fact that Jesus does not repay you according to your sins, that he doesn't treat you based on your failures is the sort of thing that ought to fill us with awe. It ought to provoke worship in us. And that's what David's doing with this psalm. What David's doing with this psalm is he's reminding himself. He's saying it to him. To to be honest, David's doing something that we would probably call crazy because David's talking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. And he's reminding himself again and again and again of how deep and vast and wide the love of Jesus is. And, and everything inside and outside of us is going to try to distract us from that. David needs to remind himself because how quickly do we go chasing something else? How quickly are we distracted by other things? We forget the trappings of this world pull our hearts and our attention in every direction. Me too. Whether we are distracted by good and happy stuff or difficult and anxious stuff, the enemy will use anything he can to pull our attention away. Maybe for you it's not that. Maybe for you our hearts want to be filled with pleasure just as long as our flesh can keep us from remembering this awe-filling truth. He doesn't repay you according to your sins or treat you according to your failures. We forget quickly, but we have great reminders. We have the reminders that David is giving us this morning. And when we receive that sort of love, when we reflect on that sort of love that stretches to the heavens, that sort of forgiveness that makes the omniscient God forget, when we remember that his steadfast love for us is from everlasting to everlasting, when we receive that kind of love, an unmoving, eternal love, it should stuff our souls too full. This week, we changed internet companies, you know, because our, our one-year discount ran out. And so, you know, you play the game where you just go, okay, fine, I'll go to the other one. And then you go to the other one and you get a year's worth of discounts from them. And then, you know, you just swap back and forth and it saves you 10 bucks. 
So they came by and they dropped off our new, uh, our new cable modem. And when they dropped it off, they gave us uh, a coax cable and an ethernet cable. Here's the thing. I don't need another coax cable or another ethernet cable. I've already got a coax cable. I had the cable modem hooked up. I already have an ethernet cable that I need to hook it up to. My, I, I have those things. But here's what I couldn't do. What I couldn't bring myself to do was throw those cables away. And the guy was gone before I could give him back to him. And I couldn't bring myself to, to take those cables and tell my friends on, on the internet, does anybody need an ethernet cable? Because none of us do. We have them lying around and they're very cheap. Does anybody need coax cable? No, nobody needs coax cable. So what did I do? I stuffed it in a drawer that I have beside my desk that is chock full with old tech and old cords. It is, it, I had to like shove it down in there on top of a serial printer cable. I don't think they've made serial printers in like 20 years. But if you need a serial printer cable, I'm your guy. I have no idea how a serial printer cable would even hook up to a modern computer. But rest assured, I have one. So if your dot matrix printer ever goes out, I'm your guy. But this drawer is just packed with like old iPods. Yes, iPods. It's packed with like boxes of phones that I haven't had in a decade, but I can't bring myself to throw any of it away. And so what do I do? I just keep shoving the stuff down into there. It's so full that I'm quite certain that any given day now, it is going to absolutely fling out, spring out of its drawer and spill its contents everywhere. Pretty sure that's what's going to happen. And the coax cable and the ethernet cable will be first. Church, the covenant faithfulness of God, his steadfast, tender, loving care should fill our souls like that drawer should fill our souls to the point where they're on the brink of explosion about his goodness, his mercy, his tenderness, his kindness. And when that happens, when our souls are reminded of what God has done for us and what happens in your heart and in mine is we raise our voices. We raise our voices and then we find we're not alone. When we raise our voices, we raise our voices with our brothers and sisters here at City Church. And our voices are louder. But more than that, David at the end of the psalm says that we're joining the great chorus of the invisible servants of God. Those terrifying angels we read about through the Bible. When we raise our voices in worship of God, those angels are singing along with us. And more than that, Creation itself joins in the song. What the whales are singing to one another as they swim through the depths is holy, holy, holy. What the penguins are saying to one another as they march down to the sea is the doxology. He has separated your sin as far as the east is from the west. He is faithful and forgiving. He is tender and kind. He doesn't deal with you according to your sins or repay you according to your failures. May that fill us and our souls past the brim. Let's pray.